0: is really a writer, humanitarian advocate, a political analyst, and um, as you might have known from her profile, she's been in Oxford before. She's had two masters at Oxford, as one does, and then moved on to do uh, uh, a JD from the Harvard, the Harvard Law School. Um, she's been in many awards and many fellowships, but mostly importantly, she's very well known for her work. She writes a lot on African politics and society, a lot on international law and feminism. And she's published extensively from Al Jazeera to The Guardian, to BBC, to The Elephant. I mean, maybe she's been there. <laughs> um, we're very incredibly honored to have Nanjala with us today. I'm not going to say anything about her book because that would be doing it all the wrong favors. So please give a warm, insightful welcome to Nanjala. Hi, everyone. Yes. Hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> In uh, Kenya, we we have a lot of these filler things. So um, when I say mm. what does that mean? It means, have you woken up? Melka. <laughs> Melka. Yeah. So I'm just here to give you a couple of, I'm really happy to be here, I should begin by saying, because I've been planning to come to an for forever. But you know how the visa dance goes. Um, and it finally, all the planets aligned, and we were able to put this together at a time when I have a new project out that I'm actually very excited about. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm excited about all of them, but you know, a book is uh, uh, my first solo book. It's a very unusual, exciting, confusing, overwhelming you name it experience. So I'm very, very happy and honored to be able to, to do this here in a space that um, I've been wanting to be a part of for the longest time. I think what AFOX is doing is really incredible. Um, I wish there had been something similar when I was at Oxford whereby our version of AFox was going to St. Anthony's for the Afrobot. Um so, but we still do. Wow, uh, you know, a lot a lot of national revolutions were planned at Afrobot, So you know there's a lot of um, things, a lot of really cool people pl- uh, planned a lot of really interesting things that they're pursuing today um, at Afrobots. So don't don't look down on that uh, party environment. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk very briefly so that we can just jump in into a dialogue. Um, I'd like to read a section from the book because this book actually has very strong connections to Oxford, but maybe not in the way that you think. Um, as as McKenna said, I was a student here. I did my uh, MSc in African Studies and MSc in forced migration. Um, and I had a very interesting experience that I capture in some of the pages here. And I really want to read those pages because in many ways I wrote this book for myself as a student, myself as a Kenyan student in African Studies in Europe. Um, and there was a lot of things that I would have wanted to hear as undergrad as a master's student, because my undergrad is also in African studies, um, that I hope will provoke some thought and some conversation as we move forward. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to um, speak very briefly from some notes that i prepared. And then um, we'll dive right in. Does that sound good? Yeah. I'm going to keep saying that, because <laughs> you have to check. This is from page one, so no spoilers. <laughs> By the end of my graduate degree in African studies in 2011, I had a gnawing frustration. Despite the large volume of books and articles I devoured about Kenya specifically and Africa in general, no matter how hard I looked, I couldn't see myself in any of the literature (coughs) I was reading about the continent and communities I called home. It sometimes felt as if Africa had stopped moving after the end of the Cold War. And the only version worth reading about was poor, violent, sickly, hungry, and ultimately only existed through the benevolence of international organizations and governments. This is the sentence that's going to annoy people. That may very well have been a product of where I was studying, yet in my life and in my extensive travels on the continent, I knew that this was an incomplete complete story. In Ghana, at the University of Kumasi, or Kwame Nkrumah National University of Science and Technology, I worked with a team setting up a project to allow more engineering students to travel to other African countries and exchange ideas. In Sudan, I walked the streets with a brilliant feminist activist who deliberately and happily invited the eye of the morality police by occupying the city in bright red, r- bright red lipstick, skinny jeans, and a perfect high bun. And in Kenya, I witnessed an idea born from a blog post quickly evolve into a pioneer into the pioneering crisis mapping app, you. It's not that Africa has no problems, but I knew that a different side to Africa existed, even if none of the books on the reading list saw it. People are doing more than just surviving. I left university with a sense that I needed to put some of my energy into helping Africa get her. This book is born out of that desire to bring something specific about contemporary Africa into the conversation. Much of the work that has already been done the, about the intersection between technology and politics in Africa has been in the composite. Edited collections about Africa that don't permit the depth the subject increasingly requires. Moreover, existing studies that dominate the discourse and are grounded in technology or developmentalism tend to be overly optimistic about the terrain, simply because they ignore politics or the political agency of the state. Yet beyond the reductive conversation on mobile money in Kenya, Young Africans are embracing technology and digital platforms as spaces to have their opinions articulated and amplified, as well as to speak directly to power in their respective societies. Technology is impacting normative ideas about the relationship between generations, allowing young people especially to speak out of turn to find and amplify each other. And in public spheres that still routinely silence the voices of women, digital spaces are making it possible for women to scream into the void. These and other changes sit comfortably in the realm of democracy, in quotes. But that's a big word that needs to be unpacked. To manage the expectation that simply providing technology will address the structural issues that have kept this energy out of the public sphere. Power is complicated. The more people move into these spaces to raise their voices, the more power pushes back. And it's necessary to understand the contours of this pushback also. So that's kind of like a, a, I think you might disagree, a bold mission statement. Um, But if you, you know, I wrote it after I wrote the book, so it's fine. I kind of knew where I was going. But essentially what I was trying to do was to tell my story to myself, as I said, as an undergrad, as a master's student. Because we have these very... Um, narrow ideas about what is interesting, what is exciting, what is compelling about African societies. And I found it very hard to believe that um, my existence or the existence of people that I know, people that I I hung out with, people that I had watched, you know, because I wasn't in the Ushahidi space, but I had watched it grow, was not interesting or compelling. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, Nanjala, nobody ever said that that was interesting or compelling. And you would be wrong. Because I tried to write this for my master's program, and I was told, these are middle class concerns. Which is weird, because I am middle class. um, And it is a concern. But 10 years later, I look at how we have been using in Kenya Twitter to monitor elections to do parallel vote counts to dispute official results. I see young people in the Democratic Republic of Congo using Twitter and Facebook to document political violence in the absence of um, international observation in some parts of the country. I see people in Burkina Faso organizing a revolution to end a 27-year um, uh, regime, primarily talking to each other. And then I'm not saying, and this is one thing that I, I, I emphasize in the book. Social media does not cause revolutions. Digital spaces don't cause revolutions. People do. People find spaces and use their agencies and use their individual <coughs> respective agencies to bring these political changes about. But there's something there about how technology's opening up space in societies that resist these expressions of agency, especially in women, especially in young people in age, you know, very age- Um, sort of where in societies where age is a big deal in communities that don't get paid attention to like in Kenya whereby if you read about Kenya you would be excused for thinking that there are only two ethnic groups in Kenya (laughs) whenever I tell people that I'm Kenya they always go oh are you Kiyo I'm not are you Luo (laughs) there are in fact 44 ethnic groups in Kenya (coughs) but because People are fascinated by elite level politics, (coughs) by the politics of power. Then the other 42 ethnic groups become spectators in their own political Mm -hmm. narratives. Mm -hmm. And these are the kinds of stories that interest me as a feminist, um, um, feminist political theories. The thing that, the, the statement that always fascinates me is the personal is political, right? It sounds like such a cliche, it's a feminist mantra. But I always ask myself, what does this situation, what does this um, issue, what does this theory look like when your central reference object is not a white man? Is an African woman? Is a young African woman? Is a disabled African man? Is a Kenyan who is not Kikuyu or Luo? Is a person from the DRC who is in the middle of an Ebola crisis trying to figure out how to vote? Is a person in Zimbabwe who doesn't have access to dollars? Is a person in Somalia who doesn't have the capacity to flee? These are the questions that interest me. These are the things that intrigue me. And this is what some of the philosophy that's been guiding the production of my non-book work, but also in this book. I basically looked at Kenyan politics and asked myself, what does contemporary Kenyan politics look like when your central reference object is not a map? And you will see some of the stories that I've collected here kind of touch on that. Now I'm the first to admit that technology is a very classed and a very, um, it's not a universal thing, especially in in Kenya, right? And I go into some detail in this book, breaking down demographics, breaking down who is on the internet. 79% of all tweets that are sent in Kenya are sent in English, right? The vast majority of people who are on social media are in Nairobi, with Mombasa a a distant second. And there's two ways of interacting with this data. One is not, the, none of which say what you think people want, what people would want you to say, which is these are middle-class concerns. Rather, it's to look at the connections between who is on these platforms, to understand who is on these platforms and how they're connected to the rest of the society. That's one way of doing it. And the other is to look for the outliers. You know, when you're talking about Chief Noor Muhammad, who is in Nakuru, who is using WhatsApp to organize... Uh, public meetings in his uh, location. We're talking about people in Garissa who are using it to draw attention to political crises that don't make it into the national news. We're talking about people in Wajir who are using Twitter to get to the National Commission of Human Rights to report the possibility of mass graves right outside the town. Neither one of these approaches collapse onto that trope, that these are middle class concerns. What we're saying is, yes, let's acknowledge the limitations. But within those limitations, what's interesting that's happening here? And I hope that that's what I've done with this book. I wanted to, I'm not going to summarize the whole book to you because A, spoilers, um, and B, I'd love for you to buy it. Um, What what I am going to do is I'm going to give you the three things, the three themes, the three ideas, the three philosophical roots that kind of ga- guided my research and my writing. And I feel like I should preface this by saying this book has its origins in the 2007 general election in Kenya. So it has been 10 years coming. But it also uh, has its roots in my experience in Oxford. So well, it was 12 years from 2007, but I stopped writing in 2017. But this is 10 years since I was in Oxford. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, also has its roots in my experience with African studies as a discipline. Um, and also has three years of actually sitting down at my desk and saying chapter one. Um, in all of those, so there's a multiple um, things sort of weaving in and out of each other. And I think the thing that I got most out of the experience is, first of all, the sheer volume of things that I don't know which I think is a great thing to acknowledge as a researcher. Um, the, the, the trying to get a grasp, I, I like to say this in presentations, that this book is not going to teach you how to code. If you're here to buy a book about coding, you're in the wrong presentation. Try down the hall. Um, I tried to understand technology. I tried to understand how the technological space works. I was fascinated by the fact that people who work in tech have no idea what's happening in Africa. They're just like, oh, Ushahidi, oh, the Maasai with the phone. Um, you ever <laughs> see the pictures our tech in Africa? There's always a Maasai with the phone. With them the Ugh, it's, it's such a picture. Um, and I was fascinated by the people who are working in development who had this hyper optimistic perspective about technology that forgot that sustainability. Technology is shaped both by the people who design it and the people who use it. So in development, you have this thing ICT4D. Have you heard those, that acronym? ICT, the number four, and then D. It's, this, it's all the rage now in um, human rights and humanitarian and development organizations because of the underlying belief that if we just give poor people more tech, or if we introduce more tech into development work, things will get better. And 90% of the time they don't. And I'll give you a good example based on my own work. I used to work in Madagascar. And um, we were trying development in Madagascar. And we were trying to do um, what we call chamas in Kenya, round robin savings clubs. You know what those are? Everybody puts in $10, $10 every month. And then at the end of a month, one person gets the 120 bucks, and is supposed to help you save. These are pretty common, um, definitely in Africa, but certainly in other parts of the world. And we were trying to digitize um, Round Robin Savings Club in Madagascar. So we got a huge grant and we told people, if you put this on your phone and you send it and send the money, mobile money, it's all exciting, it's all digital, fantastic. Big problem, Madagascar has one of the lowest literacy rates in the world. Mobile money is a text-based system. If you can't read, how are you going to be able to interact with a text-based system? And these ideas of leapfrogging, these ideas of powering through social, cultural, political realities, they don't work. They make great reports. But if we don't stop and think about the societies in which we're rolling out this ict for d interventions, then we end up in the same problem that we had in Madagascar, which was nobody wanted to use the systems that we had built.
1: Because it wasn't not,
0: not only was it a literacy issue, it was also literacy in French. Because we were developing apps in English, and people wanted to use apps in Malagasy. So we thought, let's translate them into French. And if you think the literacy rate is, I think it's thirty-five percent in Malagasy, it was even lower in French. These are the kind of things that I hope that I'm bringing up through this project is. Don't be so single-minded about either the politics or the tech that you don't see how the two things intersect. And you don't see the people who make them intersect. To go back to my three core ideas, my first is what I just said, agencies. This book is a conversation about tech in Africa that starts with Africans and not the tech. I wanted to look, and this is also why I wanted to write about Kenya and not Africa, much to the dismay of my publisher. <laughs> um, I wanted to look, as I mentioned, to politics outside the elite level. I wanted to write about Kenyan politics, but I didn't want to write about Raila, and I didn't want to write about Uhuru Kenyatta, and I didn't want to write about Kalonza Musyoka because seriously, how much more can we read about Raila and Uhuru Kenyatta and Kalonza Musyoka? And if you don't do Kenyan politics, these names are going over your head. But if you do know Kenyan politics, you know what I'm on about, right? Um, We're so fixated with elite level politics in Africa. We're so fixated with what power is doing that we forget the vast majority of Africans. And therefore, we don't give the vast majority of Africans the tools that they need to process their political circumstances. And this is from a theoretical perspective. As theorists, our job is to think about the world and to give people the tools that they need to process their world. But how can we do that if we keep making people look at power and not at themselves? This is also the reason why I have a chapter on feminism. Because when you look at elite level politics in a patriarchal society, you are looking at men. And I've had first-hand experience with this on multiple levels in Kenya because Another one of the many jobs that I've had, I've had many jobs, um, was in a non where we used to produce every election year, we would produce a book about the previous election, about the, so you'd have like, Kenya's a five-year election period, but there's really only one year between the cycle when we're not in election mode, so <laughs> the, the previous election or the next election, which is the third year is when you're like, oh, let's do a project. Um, and one thing I noticed is you would have 12 chapters written by men about men, and then you'd have the gender chapter written by a woman who would go and look at um, one either Martha, one well-known woman, Martha Karua and my guru, whoever. I did this uh, exercise for the 2015 election, and I saw what was coming down the pipeline for 2017. And I said to my team, where are women? Do women not do politics in Europe? This is part of the reason why it was so important for me to have both a feminist thread that runs throughout the book, based on my own political ideology, but to have a specific chapter that looks at what feminism is outside the elite level politics. Fundamental question for me, what does politics look like when your central reference object is not a man? The second theme that I wanted to grapple with throughout this um, project was change. Um, One of the subtitles that died on the cutting room floor is Kenya's First Digital Decade, 2007-2017. 2007, around 2006-2007 is when you really start to see the mass take up of a lot of these digital technologies in Kenya. Safaricom is 2006. Mpese is 2006, sorry. Um, Twitter is also, I think, 2006. Uh, blogging starts to really take off in the context. And, 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 and what I argue in this book is digital technologies, uh, mass communication, as a mass communication device, really start to take off because of the 2007 post-election violence. Why? Because of the censorship that was happening in mainstream media and the state control of mainstream media. So I do go into some detail about those uh, media dynamics. Um, I think when you do um, analysis of Kenya, it can feel like uh, you're a hamster on a wheel. Why am I having the same conversations that I was having in 2007, 2017? Why am I still talking about Raila? why am I still talking about Akinata? Why am I still talking about people who have been in office since 1982, 83, right? I really wanted to drill down on a specific era to try and move past those presumptions. So change is a big part of what I try to talk about here. Some of the people who've read the book have told me it it also changed me in many ways. Because in the beginning, there's a lot of optimism. And I wrote the last chapter just after the 2017 election. And it's a little bit less optimistic (laughs) than the stuff at the beginning. Um, It writes, it brings together what has changed. Hi, baby. Sorry. Um, I think that if you don't, and this is, again, another reason why I didn't want to do an Africa book if you don't get into the reads of each society, if you don't permit yourself the time and space, I I fixed the time period, I fixed the society so that I could really get into the reads of what I thought was happening, to try and understand what was changing and what hadn't (coughs) changed, and the nature of change in general. To push back against the erasure of these key moments because if you swoop into Kenya, the January of the election or the July of the election as election observers are want to do, you miss out on the fact that I'll give you a great example with women in politics. Everybody always uh, NDI and all of these, I shouldn't sm- mention names, um, you have all of these big grant giving organizations who descend upon African countries three weeks three months before the election and then they say we're gonna train women and capacity build women into going to elections. And I had one woman say to me, I'm just so tired of being capacity built. <laughs> you know, because I've been to every single conceivable women in politics workshop. I can't be trained anymore. So if all of this is happening, why aren't there more women in politics? Well, if you get into the reads of Kenyan politics, you realize that most women are intimidated, beaten, bribed, cheated, their certificates stolen during the nomination phase, which happens about four months before the election. So you thinking about the election and thinking about how oh, women, if they only knew how to make posters for the election campaign, completely misses the point. Right, And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to really get into the reeds of this thing, to stop myself from giving just a superficial treatment and, and unpack some of the unseen elements of what was happening. You might look at Kenyan media, for example, and think, they're so bad at their jobs. What's wrong with these people? Why aren't they more searing? Why aren't they more critical? Why didn't they report the correct results when they knew they had the correct election results? And if you swooped in in 2017, even in January 2017, you would miss the fact that in December 2013, the Jubilee Administration passed a media law, Media Act, that said that any media house that shared information that was not verified by the IEBC would be subject to a fine of 5 million shillings, 50000 US dollars. That anybody media outlet that was found culpable of telling a story that wasn't the official sanctioned election story was opening itself up to, criti- cri- to crippling fines. That when we had this panel staring in, and the media dared, the three media houses dared to go on air with what was happening at Uhuru Park. I'm speaking this is kind of like insider's but you don't need the details at this point if you don't have them yet. That every day that they were on air, they were being fined by the media um, watchdog because they had been telling a story that hadn't been officially signed. So this is why this change theme was really important to me. I didn't want to just swoop into the 2017 election and begin making summary observations that were not grounded in some measure of longevity, but at the same time in some measure of depth. And the final theme is connection. As I said, One of the things that struck me when I was talking to the tech guys was the fact that really, in Silicon Valley, Africa does not exist outside Ushahidi and M-Pesa. It doesn't. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, the New York Times had an article about election interference on social media, and they said in their headline, the Russians perfected the technique in 2016 And now it's being rolled out in Brazil and Bangladesh, whatever, afterwards. Now if you know anything about Kenyan politics, you know that that's just not where the story begins. Cambridge Analytica, the bane of our political existence, has been active in Kenya since 2013. They were active in Nigeria in 2016, I want to say 2015. When was the Nigerian election? 2015. They were active in the 2015 Nigerian election. They were active in South Africa as well, right? They manipul- the same tactics that were used in the United States general election in the Brexit vote were pioneered in Africa, were tested even in India. All of the social media interference that we're freaking out about was tested in Africa with no oversight. Because in Kenya, for example, we don't have a data protection law. We don't have a data privacy law. At the time, we didn't have a cybersecurity law. We had very lax laws on data collection um, and individuals. They ran a survey in 2013, and 47,000 respondents gauged what Kenyans respond to and produced a uh, strategy for the Jubilee Administration that basically, when you think about Kenya's experience with the ICC, it was two British PR firms, one of which was Cambridge Analytica that developed that. So this stuff doesn't start in 2016. It doesn't begin with Brexit. But the idea that African politics is an insular thing that happens, as driven by different motivations, you know, primordial tensions, ha, ha, ha. Um, and that all of this other stuff that happens in the rest of the world is somehow qualitatively different, I found that very hard to believe and to accept. And so there's a lot of stuff in this book that um, people who work in African politics, African studies, went, do you really need to spend six pages talking about the development of social media? Do you really need this number of pages talking about tech platforms and Alexander Nix and Cambridge Analytica? Why can't you just talk about Raila and Uhuru for me, it was the idea of connection. We have to stop treating African issues as if they are unmoored, and they're just floating on the ocean of knowledge separately from everybody else. We are in this world. We are part of this world. And what happens in Africa matters to the rest of the world. And not in the way that you know, uh, we are waiting for the rest of the world to save us, but in the sense of what I said before about agency. There are people actively making decisions that will have ramifications, not just for African people, but for the rest of the world. To me, the most salient example of this right now is what's happening to elections in the world. Everything that you're freaking out about, about elections, about foreign interference with elections, about the fact that money is shaping electoral outcomes in a very alarming way, all of this stuff is things that we've been worrying about for the better part of the last 25 years. The fact that people can buy elections in the DRC that the third candidate can be announced as the winner and people will accept it because they privilege the stability of the DRC over the economic stability of the DRC over the well-being of the people of the Congo. That's not new, that didn't start in 2017. This is something for us as Kenyans for example that we've been struggling with. Since 2007, and if we don't start making these connections, it's not just about you—you you being the West surviving, more you know, preserving yourselves. It's about the fact that we're not building holistic philosophies, theories, viewpoints, practices about what kind of world we want to live in moving forward. And I'm always fascinated by the idea of future-proofing, or you know, of the future. Um, reflecting some kind of universal human I don't know, thing right I hate this idea this underlying idea that we are not connected and we here are Africans and so that's what I was writing about that's one of the things that I was writing against so there's a lot of references to things that you might not expect to find in a book about an African country but as I say in one of the um, chapters this is about how an unexpected place was using platforms tech that was designed was not designed with them in mind to determine their own political agency I'm going to leave you um, actually had nothing else written down <laughs> but I'm going to leave you with I guess Tidy back to what I said in the beginning. I wrote this book for myself as a person sitting in a seminar room um, in Oxford and not seeing herself represented in any of the literature that she was encountering. I've tried to write a book that is accessible. I've tried to avoid um, overly technical language. I, I, I strongly believe that if you can't explain what your research is doing to someone in plain language, then you don't know what you're doing. And so I try to avoid jargon. Um, I try to, I think I'm funny, but I, I'm know. i not objective. I try to throw some jokes in there. Um, and I hope that even if you are not uh, a specialist in African politics, a specialist in African history, a specialist in Kenyan politics, Kenyan history, technology, whatever, that this is a book that will help you think more curiously, more interestingly, more inclusively, about this strange little country that I call home. Thank you.